and welcome to a new episode of PR360, and I'm your host, Brett Dyster. If you could please subscribe to PR360 on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music, leave a review. It really does help with the rankings, and let us know how we're doing. This week, we have Nick Desai, and he is the founder and former CEO of Heal. He's also done quite a bit of different things within the healthcare industry, which is what we're going to be talking about since it's so important and interesting in this time of age since everything is locked down, but actually opening it back up. So he's got a wealth of knowledge in that, but he's also been a part of different types of lists from everything from the 2020 CNBC Disruptor 50 list and the 2019 Consumer Electronics Show Small Business of the Year. So welcome to the show, Nick. Great to be here. Glad to spend time with your listeners. And we appreciate you taking your time out as well. But my first question is, are you a coffee or tea drinker? Tea drinker, 100%. Hot tea all the way, not nothing like cold tea or anything like that, or cold brew tea, I think is a new thing. English breakfast, Earl Grey, hot tea. No, just, I like it extremely hot and just the really good tea and gets me going in the morning. And here is my tea. Ah, cheers to that. I have coffee, but still cheers to that. It doesn't really matter. But can you give us a little bit more of an introduction to yourself about your expertise? I gave a brief, but can you do a little bit more for that? Yeah. So I'm a first-generation immigrant. I was born in Mumbai, India. I had the privilege of growing up in South Orange County, California, and Irvine. My father and mother both educated and very much valued education, focused on STEM way back then. I went to elementary school in the 70s and went to UC Irvine for electrical engineering then UCLA for my master's in electrical engineering. And then after a few years of working, I've been developing technology startups for the last 26, 27 years. Heal was my fourth investor-funded startup. We raised $200 million for that one. It obviously was the biggest I've done. Before that, I had an online weight loss coaching startup called Fit Orbit, mobile social media startup. And before that, a web-based self-updating address book, I raised capital, done deals, but really driven by using technology to make our real lives better. I'm not technology for the sake of technology kind of person. I'm a Uber makes it easier to get from point A to point B and Netflix makes it easier to watch content and Grubhub makes it easier to get food to my house and Heal, my the company I built and ran until just a couple of months ago, makes it easier to see a doctor. And focusing on those real human needs where someone could say, ooh, that was a little easier. It was a little better. And with healthcare, even can be phenomenally more important than that because there's so many people who are socioeconomically disadvantaged and unable to get to the doctor that that's the driving passion. And that's what I'm thinking about now for what I want to do next. Nice. And speaking more about healthcare, healthcare has had an interesting time, I would say almost say slash growth in 2020 since everything was about health of people, which is understandable. But what are some positive changes that has happened in 2020 when it comes to healthcare tech? I think that it's impossible to talk about 2020 without recognizing the sort of generational tragedy of over half a million people dying from COVID, many of whom did not have to die if there was better healthcare policy. But I think from that, two or three things have come out, right? Telehealth, the availability of healthcare over video or not having to be 
in a doc or house calls like heal not having to be in a doctor's office has exploded in popularity in acceptance and in being mainstream to the point where amazon offers telehealth now it's that commodity and that mainstream and it needs to be because everybody should be able to get the doctor at, get to a doctor at the touch of a button and and so that's one big thing the other big thing is there were some policy changes in 2020 that were accelerated by covid the reimbursement rates for telehealth the relaxing of interstate licensing rules if you're a doctor in california you're a doctor in nevada and having to go and get the license in that state and yes california is a big place and we don't think about crossing state borders but new york and new jersey should not have separate licensing requirements people live in one and work in the other and and doing those kinds of things some good things came out there I'm really excited to see some of the things that the Biden administration has put out, particularly in recognizing healthcare and home health as infrastructural, right? As part of President Biden's $4 trillion infrastructure bill is $400 billion for home health work. And I think that's phenomenally important because it's going to be a huge gap in the next two decades. We have this aging, longer living population and we want to keep them at home and they want to stay at home. So I think a lot of interesting things. But I think that I was talking to an Israeli entrepreneur today in Israel and great guy, phenomenally accomplished guy. And first of all, peace to everyone there and in Palestine and that region of the world right now. But he was, you know, we were talking about some problems in the American healthcare system that are uniquely American problems. In other countries where they have single payer and where healthcare works differently, some of the problems we're still trying to fix have already been fixed there. And so there's still a lot to do. There, innovation has a long way to go. Gotcha. And I'm pretty sure some actual problems actually arose in 2020 when we were talking about implementing like telehealth and anything. Was there solutions that fixed some of the problems in 2021? Are we still trying to figure out more of these solutions? Look, I think telehealth became ubiquitous from a provider and care delivery systems offering telehealth perspective. The two biggest problems that exist right now with anything digital care delivery is you're typically not talking to your doctor. You're talking to someone to do triage. And we cannot, in, and it's not necessary to lose the longitudinal relationship that a doctor has with a patient where they really know the person to deliver health over digital means. The more important and staggering issue in America, the digital divide is exacerbated in healthcare. 85% of people who use telehealth in 2020 had a household income over $150,000 a year. Great for them, but that's not most Americans. So that means that the people who really need these services, the people who live in rural areas, the people who can't get out of their house, the people who are socioeconomically disadvantaged and their children are not getting access to the kinds of healthcare solutions that can help them level the playing field and get the preventative and timely clinical care that can help them lead happier, healthier lives. Gotcha. And so what can PR pros do to help with the messaging on telehealth? Because I feel like some people may be skeptical about it just because it's something new. And as always, something new, people go, I don't know about this. I like to actually see my doctor. So is there anything PR people can actually do to be like, look at, yeah, you may not be able to see your doctor, but here's an alternative way to still get the healthcare that you need. First of all, we used PR extensively at Heal. We had a phenomenal PR firm and then another larger one, but throughout our entire six years, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention the names on this podcast, but the most important role PR can do is 
informing consumers of the available options and educating consumers about the importance of these options. It isn't that you are choosing between a doctor's office and a telehealth visit for most people. It's that you're choosing between a telehealth visit and ignoring the health issue. That is a choice that I think PR and the overall health system and the public policy system in this country needs to talk about. And we know that can work. We know that when it comes to COVID vaccines, private sector, public sector, there are companies offering you free lottery tickets and free beers and free this and free that to go get your freaking COVID vaccine. It shouldn't have to be that way because everyone should want the vaccine, but whatever. That's the world we live in. And policymakers are pushing it and celebrities are pushing it. I think the same thing needs to happen. That get healthcare any way you can. There are some things for which you need to interact with a doctor face-to-face. And that's why we created Heal and Dr. House Calls that my wife and I created back in 2014. And now a lot of companies are copying that approach. But there are a lot of things that can be taken care of. And it's certainly better than ignoring those issues. Gotcha. And one of the guests we had recently talked about how like content can just be like instruction guides or something like that. Is there a way that PR pros can help with maybe an installation guide per se on how to do telehealth or something like that? Could they focus on that type of strategy if they're going to be pushing more towards telehealth probably in 2022 and this year as well? I'm not actually a big fan of instruction guides or content as instruction because the people who need it are not likely to consume it in that format. What I think PR pros can do is help bring the message to the local. If you read TechCrunch and Fierce Healthcare and and any trade tech, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, CNN, great. There's a lot of talk about these kinds of solutions and services. But if you are reading still your local community paper, if you are getting news from a local source, if it's word of mouth type stuff, then I think bringing it to the patient level, literally and figuratively where they live by interacting with the patients in those communities and saying, look, this is Juanita Gomez and she's 68 and doesn't have a car and she used telehealth and she lives in the San Fernando Valley and that's covered in the San Fernando Valley local newspaper so that her community of fellow similar people can also use it. I I think that bringing it to different languages In California, we obviously think about Spanish, but also Vietnamese, Korean, Armenian, some Indian languages, right? Making it something that lives where humans are, literally and figuratively, I think is really important. And I think PR can play an important role in that. Gotcha. So does that mean more of a generational thing? Because each generation does kind of consume different types of, I guess, news differently. So the younger generations are more online. But the older generations could be, like you said, using the community paper. But then we have to talk about the news media and how it's shrinking, even though the bigger players are gobbling up things, but the community papers are shrinking, as I heard. They're not as many as they used to be. Yeah, but I think that there's still local radio shows and there's still, right, everyone's getting their news from somewhere. And I think the other thing is, and we did this when Renee and I were running Heal, But we went on Fox a number of times. We talked to Dr. Mark Siegel, Neil Cavuto, and talked about it because that's where a lot of Americans, especially older Americans, especially lower income Americans, that's where a lot of them are getting their news. Not me. We got to break down the barriers because healthcare is not a red or blue issue. It's a human issue. And we got to bring it 
great PR companies have the courage to bring health where it belongs, which is, and the ability, which is sometimes very local. And sometimes the big article in Washington Post gets you some press and, ooh, the investors are looking at it. But is the average consumer going to get their information there? Is that where they're going to trust it? Or is it going to be something that their friend puts on their social media that they, whatever, and comes to them on WhatsApp through someone sharing a link? Wherever they are, we have to bring it to those mediums. Mm -hmm. And even going to more content strategy, how do you go around the hurdles? Because healthcare is a little bit different. You have to be very understanding about health records in general and have, you can't actually do things that you can't normally do maybe from a consumer standpoint. So how do you strategize on making great content without messing up in some area? First of all, the thing to know is understanding the health literacy of your audience. Are you speaking to a tech-savvy group of 30-year-olds? Are you speaking to a tech-savvy group of 70-year-olds? Are you speaking to the average 75-year-old in America that has a fourth-grade reading level? Are you speaking to English as a first language or second language? I think understanding that is critical. To, or are you speaking to children? Taking the content to communicate with the person, with the dignity at the which that person can understand and the fidelity with which you're speaking with them is critical. The second thing I think is developing content that is not so generic that if brush your teeth, okay, everyone should do that. Okay, great. Got it. But is not user specific that you have to violate HIPAA and other healthcare privacy laws. Trying to help people with their objectives, I think is critical. In healthcare, we often talk about, oh, we want people to have medication adherence, right? You think the average person on eight daily medications cares about medication adherence? They don't know what medication adherence means, and they don't care, and they shouldn't have to. What they care about is, I had enough energy to go play with my grandkids today. I had enough this to do that today. Too often, we don't communicate to the benefits of the science to the human the way they're thinking about it. We're eager to sell what we have rather than give the consumer what they need. And I think understanding that allows us to create very curated, narrowly targeted content that does not have to ever get into health records specifically. Gotcha. And uh, pivoting a little bit to just ransomware and cyber attacks, since they actually did happen to a couple hospitals in the past five or so years, how can PR pros manage that or at least prepare for that? when the eventuality of actually getting hacked because it's not if you get it hacked it's when you get hacked now i think that's a great question and i think i'm an engineer who works in healthcare and i think about this and it's unfortunate that we all have to prepare for it but it would be like saying you don't have car insurance for your car nobody wants to get into an accident but you still have car insurance because if you're driving on the american roads it's not if it's when something might happen Something's going to happen. Our car got stolen off our driveway, literally. And we live in one of the safest neighborhoods in America. So I think that similarly, PR is a critical part of having a proactive, if we get hacked, if data gets leaked, if we violate HIPAA, if there's a, let's say it's not a cyber attack and a rogue employee puts something on the internet. That's not a cyber attack. That's someone you can fire. But having a proactive plan that includes transparent, early, frequent communication, not like this company was hacked, 8 million records are out there, company made no comment, but rather coming to the market and say, we were hacked, 
or this data leaked. It was an accident. Here's our remedy plan being the first to communicate it to your users, being the first to communicate to the media. That transparency gives the story no place to go. Okay, it happens. It's a real part of American life. It's a real part of running a business in America. It's a real part of American healthcare. This is an area where I think PR companies should develop an expertise that would consult with a company and say, we're here and this plan is ready. And God forbid this happen, we hit the go button. Boom. And I think it even goes a step before that which is not to tempt fate, but having a proactive plan to communicate, here's all the safety and security steps we are taking. Nothing and no one is hack-proof, but many things, communicating what you're doing, being transparent, letting the press know. There was a movie, Clear and Present Danger, right, where Harrison Ford is John Ryan or whatever, and the Tom Clancy novel, and, and he goes in, and the president's trying to deny that his best friend was a uh, drug dealer or whatever. And he says, don't deny it, admit it. It gives the story no place to go. Yeah, he was one of my best friends, but I didn't know about this. I think similarly, being proactive, transparent, and having an extremely high quality PR professional or a company create that plan is fundamental to how you come out of that unscathed or as unscathed as possible, I should say. So buck the trend of like what a lot of businesses have been doing. Cause a lot of businesses don't tell you until it's already very too late and it's already pretty bad. I think recently Peloton even got hacked and they didn't tell until much later than they should have. So what you're saying for PR pros is that be ahead of the game, do your crisis calm and everything, but also consult an actual company that deals with this as well. Maybe have insurance if you can get insurance as well. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I mean, for cyber insurance, certainly, and we, we have that at Heal, and I've had that for 10, 15 years. I'm a huge believer in insurance overall. But I think if you go back to the Peloton problem, Peloton had a bigger problem than they got hacked, which is their new treadmill kids were getting sucked under and dying. And they didn't issue the recall as early as they should have. In today's world, you have to live in a reality, right? What is that phrase? Dance like no one is watching, send a text message or email like it's going to be used in cross-examination in a criminal case against you. You have to be that paranoid. You have to be, and you have to think that way. And the everything is going to get out there. The question is, are you going to bring it out? And are you going to control the message? And are you going to be transparent so that your users think, hey, it happens, but these guys were fair and reasonable and did the best thing they could? Or are you going to come out looking like you're not a victim of malicious actors? You are a participant in a cover-up. Gotcha. So PR pros, just be as transparent as you can be at the time because sometimes you don't know how bad the hack can be, but at least leave the door open and say, we'll give you more information once we know something is what I'm hearing. But I'll take it a step further which is there are a lot of companies that don't use PR, and I think everyone should use PR. It's the most cost-effective media strategy out there. But even if you don't, even if you're not the kind of product who cares about PR, PR companies should productize the sale of a crisis, proactive crisis response plan as it relates to cyber hacks, data leaks, especially in the healthcare space. Sell their clients on it and sell their non-clients on it. Okay, if this happens, there's a red button, boom, we're going to go into action. Gotcha. 
And moving on to like future trends, what do you see the next five years to be in the healthcare industry? Do you see more tight integration with like the Apple Watch and all the other smart devices to properly or accurately tell your doctor what's going on? Is there anything like that going on? What what do you foresee in the healthcare industry? Yeah, I think I think a couple of different things. I think first we are going to see digital first care delivery. Digital as in telehealth, but not just for triage and if I can't get a hold of my doctor, but my primary relationship with my care team is my doctor, my mental health professional, my this, my that, my whatever, is a digitally driven approach, okay? Second thing I think is, and I've been believing this since we founded Heal seven years ago, is that the doctor's office is dead in the same way the Blockbuster video store is dead, right? Yeah, for surgeries and for this and for that, fine. But for routine examinations, just as your food comes to your door, your goods and services come to your door, your content gets streamed to you, your doctor should come to you and not the other way around. I always say that my eldest son is seven years old. I don't think he's ever going to learn how to drive a car because self-driving cars. But similarly, I don't think my two-year-old daughter will know what doctor's offices are. God forbid something serious happened, but otherwise she won't need to ever know what a doctor's office is. I think the third trend is what is missing and what needs to be created, which is what I call horizontal care integration. That's an industry term, but what it means for a consumer is you're a 68-year-old diabetic, hypertensive, with chronic kidney disease, of which there are 50 million Americans almost. You take 12 daily medications. You need mental health. You need this. You need that. And you have no way to put all that together coordinating and integrating that in a patient-centric manner so that the average person can actually get, it's not your doctor, my doctor said I should do this and this, but I don't even remember what those things are by the time I get to my car, much less how to do them. It's my doctor said to do this and my phone is actually helping me make sure it all happens in a proactive way. I think that is the, those are some key trends you're going to see. And the last one I would say is the increased use of machine learning and artificial intelligence to get more precision healthcare that's data-driven, that's tied to genomes, that's tied to data models, that's tied to big data, et cetera, so that doctors can be more precise the first time around. Mm -hmm. And fun question for you. If you create a brand new healthcare system, there's nothing going on or anything like that. How would you build it? Wow. How much time do you have? I would say at a high level, Healthcare should be a single-payer system, is my belief. And it would be a value-oriented single-payer system that leverages digital technologies so that no one is left behind. And I would invest far more dollars in early childhood preventive care and education. If you teach, if you give people healthcare in their first 20 years of life, and if you teach them how to make good choices, not, not going to avoid everything but about diet, about nutrition, about exercise, about whatever, we can create a culture as Japan has where better choices, we're not creating disease states. We're not making people obese and then dealing with obesity, turning to diabetes, turning to kidney disease, turning to this, and dealing with that cycle of issues. Rather, we are in many cases using preventive health at the early onset. And then one of the problems in America is we spend a vast majority of healthcare dollars on the last six months of life rather than the first 20 years of life. Gotcha. Any final thoughts for our listeners? No, this was fun. These are great questions. I hope the audience enjoyed it. And there's a lot to do. So 
if you're inspired by this, jump in and get involved. All right. Thank you, Nick, for joining PR360 and sharing your thoughts on healthcare and healthcare tech. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to PR360. As always, please subscribe to PR360 on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Leave a review. It really does help with the rankings and let us know how we're doing. And join us next week as we talk to another great thought leader in the PR industry. All right, guys, stay safe. Get to know your healthcare system or at least be healthy as well and see you next week later